0: Welcome to Industry Focus,
1: the podcast
0: that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day.
1: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
0: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, June 25th. We're talking about three stocks down big from their recent highs. I'm your host Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's actionable analyst of accurate asymmetric asset advancement, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Dylan. Today was my kids' first day of summer, so I have my fingers crossed that they're getting nice and quiet in the in the room that's next to me. How are you?
0: <laughs> I, I hope that uh, I hope that that's right. You know, you you never know, and that's that's part of the beauty of, of the stay at home life, the recording at home life. We we have been subject over the last year and a half to all kinds of fun things with our recordings, be them in our podcasts or in in Motley Fool Live. Uh, thankfully, the garbage trucks that were just emptying out the trash in the alley next to my office have moved. So, Brian, I I hope we have a an interruption free recording session. Come on, silence, gods, get us through this hour. <laughs> Uh today we are going to be talking about stocks on sale. And uh, you know, you, you can kind of define that a couple different ways, Brian. Uh some some folks might be looking uh here for things that trade at relatively low multiples on a valuation basis. We're gonna be focusing this conversation on companies that are down a bit from recent highs, and, and in most cases, uh double digit or deep into the double digit uh percentages down from their recent highs. Um and, and I think these are, these are fun shows to do. They're a little tough. They can be kind of gut-wrenching if you own any of these companies um, because <laughs> it's easy to look at these types of things as buying opportunities if you've been sitting on the sidelines. It's a little bit tougher if you own a position in a company and, and you've had to endure a, a 20 or 30% decline.
1: I'll go out on a limb and say that all three of the companies that we're about to talk about are pretty high quality, and many of our foolish members uh, own all three of them. In fact, I own uh, two of them, and I'm very seriously considering uh, the third. So, to your point, it's really hard to say what is on sale. Mean, uh, yes, all three of these companies are down substantially from their highs, and that's how we define on sales. I don't think you could say with a straight face that any of these stocks are cheap.
0: No, no, and that's that's a good distinction. Uh, cheap. Tends to imply uh, valuation. Uh, we're we're you know looking at the uh, the sticker on the rack and saying you know this is this is marked down a little bit from where it once was. So I guess it's cheap on a relative basis. Um, and yeah, to to you know reinforce that, Brian. I own one of these. The other two are watchless stocks for me. So uh, you know certainly businesses that I've been following uh, and names that are all going to be pretty familiar to fools. Uh, the first one is Appian. Um, and and Appian shareholders, I think, have probably been feeling a little bit of pain over the last couple months.
1: Appian, uh, the particular symbol is APPN. Yeah, the last few months have not been fun. Uh, the current stock, uh, the stock is currently down forty two percent from its February uh, high earlier this year. That's kind of painful. Uh, On the bright side, if you've been a shareholder of this business since day one, you're currently up 800% since its 2017 IPO. So you're doing okay, depending on your holding period. And for those that don't know, Appian is a software company that is focused on a low-code software development platform. Their software allows essentially anybody to develop their own custom-made apps because instead of requiring users to type in lines of code, Appian provides very simple, intuitive flowcharts and drag-and-drop tools that allow anybody to build a custom app within weeks or, or months. And what's nice about using Appian software is that once you build it on there, this isn't like a dumbed-down version of an app. It's infinitely scalable, uh, it's replic- replicable, it's, it's secure, and it runs native on every platform. Appian is one of the leaders in this industry and it's been growing rapidly for years.
0: Yeah, and, and for folks that maybe don't know Appian but do know the full universe well, I, I kind of liken this company to a Twilio, where it is making something very simple uh, and easy for businesses that otherwise they would have to home grow and make themselves.
1: Yeah, I think that that's fair. And again, one of, the, one of the real keys of this product is they like to say, you don't have to be a software developer to write your own uh, custom applications. And that's really appealing to a lot of businesses out there because every business is unique and it's nice to have kind of homegrown solutions of your software. So by making it easier for them to do so, you can make your business more efficient.
0: Yeah, I mean think about it. If you can make every employee a coder on some level, you're gonna be automating a lot of things. You're gonna be making businesses and operations far more efficient uh than they would be. And and I I'm, I'm certainly guilty of that with some of the manual processes that I have uh with, with spreadsheets I run, Brian. So who knows? May maybe Appian something I should be looking into. I'm, I'm sure they should. The fool should get on that.
1: <laughs> now, while the stock price has kind of been all over the map if recently, uh, if you look at the company's recent results, there's a lot to be uh, encouraged about. Uh, so this company is a software as a service company. However, they do generate revenue in two different ways. Uh, one is from uh, subscription sales, and that's made up of both on-premise revenue as well as cloud-based revenue. Uh, that's the mar- that's the revenue that investors should really care about and watch because that's pretty high margin. Uh, on that front, that revenue grew 20 during the most recent quarter to about $64 million. The other way this company generates revenue is from Professional services, which is a service-based component where they go in and basically help companies to get the software off the ground with more of a hands-on touch. That's low-margin revenue, uh, and uh, that figure actually dropped 11% year over year to just 25 million. Believe it or not, but that's okay because Appian has been outsourcing that that's work to many of its uh, consulting partners. That's a much more appealing uh, business model because Appian gets to focus on the high-margin recurring revenue and all of the cost of of Launching that go on other um, uh, on other consultants' uh, books. So when you combine those two together, total revenue only grew thirteen percent to eighty nine million. But it's the revenue split between subscription and professional services that investors should pay attention to.
0: Yeah, and Brian, you, you're talking about how by and large res- results are pretty solid. For the business and, and about what you'd be expecting, um, I think the natural question here is when when you see the fundamental business results are pretty strong, um, what what explains the sell off that investors have seen over the last couple months?
1: For reasons that I still quite can't explain, for what for whatever reason, about eight months ago, Appian stock just caught the market's attention. It was right around the time that Slack was getting uh, bought out. And when that happened, I think investors must have looked at Appian stock and said, this is next. This is quote unquote cheap uh, by comparison. And the valuation multiple just expanded hugely. Uh, this is a company that was trading at about 10, 11, 12 times sales. And at at its peak, just a few months ago, it reached 53 times sales. So even after the recent drop that we've seen, which has been pretty substantial, this company still say, trades at about 29 times sales, which historically is actually still pretty expensive. Now, on a gross profit basis, that's another metric that you can look at. It's about 43 times gross profit. Uh, that's also an expensive number. There are no free cash flow, and there's no adjusted earnings to look at, so we can't use any of those multiples. Um, so that's Really, the story here. It's just the valuation went crazy and today it's less crazy.
0: Yeah, that that is one of the kind of hard things to wrap your head around when you when you see big declines. And you know, it's helpful to take that step back. You mentioned just how the company has performed uh since IPO, but to to kind of double click into the growth that, that you mentioned there with, with with the valuation, uh from late October of twenty twenty to mid February, the stock was up 250%. So, you know, we, we saw a huge, huge run with digital transformation businesses in general in 2020, but this was like the tail end of 2020 and, and, and in, in almost a nonsensical way, uh, the valuation just exploded for this business. Even after this decline that we're talking about here, Brian, still up a clean double. From from where it was in October. So a lot of shareholders probably still pretty happy with this company. Um the, the tough part is if you were one of those folks who bought a position or maybe your first position uh sometime in early 2021 around those highs.
1: Yeah, and Appian is a company you really have to double-click and look at look beyond the headline numbers when you're judging its results. Again, if you just saw software company trading at 29 times sales, revenue growth was 13%, you'd kind of be like, what gives there are so many other companies that are growing 40 50% out there how can this thing trade at such a high multiple but again you really have to look at the cloud and the subscription based revenue to really judge this company's per- performance and on that front it's growing in the mid 20s or even the low 30s so that's a much more that's a much more attractive number
0: yeah and that's a pretty solid clip i mean i always like to take that that kind of step back and say, okay, well, what does this growth rate turn into over a short period of time? If you're going in the mid 20% range. That's a it's a double every three years in your top line. So that's solid growth. It's certainly going to command a uh, a decent premium. And uh, you know, I, I would not be surprised if this is a company that at times finds accelerating growth as they're able to better tell their story and become a much larger business.
1: That's a big part of the thesis for me. They, they're launching uh, new products. They're doing a great job of signing up new customers. They're expanding internationally. I'm a shareholder of this business, and I've been pleasantly surprised by the jump and not as pleasantly happy with the uh, the recent decline. But long-term, I think there's reasons to really like this business.
0: I think we're going to see a somewhat similar story uh, with our second stock here, and that's Airbnb. Uh, probably the one that people are most familiar with of the names we're going to discuss today, but really the name in short-term rentals. This is a kind of marketplace or platform company connecting homes, rental properties with individuals that are looking for somewhere to stay. A super hot business, and one of those, uh, even if you don't really follow the market that closely type companies, you probably heard about it when it went public uh, last year. So there's a lot of excitement around this company. Uh, It's currently down about 30% since February highs. And, you know, I mean, Brian, I, I think a lot of people. Even just thinking vaguely about what Airbnb does can connect the dots and say, "Yeah, th- th- there was some lumpiness and some difficulties that this company ran into in 2020."
1: Why was there something going on in 2020 that would make it hard for this company to 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 grow? Yeah, Airbnb really came public at a peculiar time in its in its history. Uh, 2020 was an abysmal year for the company in the beginning. Uh, if you look what's happening today, I know that uh, rentals and the travel market is back in a big way and the company's business has really picked up. That kind of whipsaw in in, in revenue uh, has definitely impacted the, the stock price, but it does make looking at the valuation today much more difficult because if you're looking at the trailing numbers, they look abysmal. You really have to look forward to get any sense of of where this company should be trading.
0: Yeah, and and for the company's uh, to the company's benefit, you know, they are providing both, you know, one year comps and two year looks uh, on a lot of their metrics to help normalize a little bit for what's going on, but you know, the growth story with this company, 2018, 40% growth, 2019, 31% growth. And then we saw uh, a pretty decent dip in 2020. They only captured about 60% of the revenue that they did in the year prior. Um, we're starting to see some quarterly reports come out um, for for 2021 of course and they are showing some growth in q1 revenue was uh, just under 900 million um, and and it did show about five percent growth uh, which is which is helpful i mean you you want to be seeing that i think Brian for a lot of people you, you just got to kind of put 2020 on the side for this business um, as you do for most hospitality businesses uh, most travel businesses uh, the the big concerning thing is loss is really ballooned and and that's something that they're going to be able to hopefully write in the in the time that comes. But what I think is kind of fascinating is, for as difficult a time as twenty twenty was for Airbnb, uh, they rebounded shockingly quickly in, in a lot of ways. And and I think that they are uniquely positioned in, in travel and hospitality uh, to benefit from where the world is going and a lot of the trends that are emerging as we're seeing a little bit more flexible work accommodations, uh, people possibly being a little bit more interested in being in more rural areas for vacations or for multi-week stints uh, rather than than urban areas. Um, There seems to be a lot to like here with the business.
1: Oh, yeah. I believe that you and I did an S1 show on this company. And when we did, we came away and said, whew, there's a lot to like uh, uh, about this business. And to your point, while the trailing revenue, while well, well, it's good to see that the revenue growth was over 5%, what really stood out to me was that this company reported gross booking values that were up 52% year over year. Now, yes, that was off a depressed quarter in the year ago period. Uh, however, Q1 of this year, there were still a lot of lockdown procedures basically everywhere. In in the United States and and, and globally, uh, but that should give us a really good sense that business is about to rebound sharply. And don't forget that a lot of people um, really up their cleaning fees that they charge for this this platform uh, as a result of of the pandemic. From what I've seen, those are still around, so that could expand this company's the, the take rate in this company takes uh, for for the foreseeable future.
0: Yeah, and it was encouraging too to see that average daily rates uh, were continuing to grow for the business. Uh, they were up uh, one hundred and sixty. They were up to one hundred and sixty dollars in the recent quarter, which is up thirty five percent year over year. I mentioned some of the trends um, at play here, and the company specifically cited the growth in ADR is attributable to a lot of things brought on by the pandemic, namely flexible work setups, but also more rentals for entire homes, um, more rentals in non-urban destinations. And more family travel, all of those are generally gonna lead to bigger spaces, which can command higher rental uh, rates for the company, which is obviously good for the hosts and also particularly good uh, for the take rates. One of the other things that I think is pretty encouraging from recent results is that we're seeing booking windows lengthening for the business. And so this is basically how far out people are choosing to book uh, a reservation. And the further out, People are willing to do that. I think that's, in some ways, Brian, a sign of confidence that people can comfortably book travel, book hotels, uh, that kind of thing. Um, which, which to me says, it, you know, in addition to all of the other activity that we're seeing on the platform, a lot of the more casual travel is starting to return for them.
1: And that's a big part of their, their business. To your point, I think do think that's that's really great. Like like a lot of other industries that we've seen, the supply of of, of accommodations is depressed uh, right now. Meanwhile, people are getting back to work and have money to spend and are desperate to really go on vacation uh, for the first time. So that I think uh, is going to be a really bullish sign for this company over the next couple of years.
0: And and I think you know people are wondering. Okay, sounds great. Um, every, every, <laughs> everything that you've said so far sounds pretty good. Uh, explain the dip. And, you know what we saw in in this case is about that 30 percent dip from from those February highs um, I think a couple factors at play here Brian but this is to some extent uh similar to evaluation a valuation based uh, uh, correction kind of that we're seeing in the stock price um you know I, I think things to keep in mind is we're still within the first year of them being a public trade company um, it's a consumer brand recently public a lot of hype a lot of expectations this is one of those unicorns that Almost everyone knew um, and and were pretty familiar with. Um, we also saw the lockup period come for this business, and so insiders were finally able to sell shares. Now there was already a, a pretty healthy decline happening. I think they were already down about twenty percent from highs when that lockup period expired. But that doesn't necessarily help things either when the supply of shares uh, winds up being uh, increased. Um, but I think you know to to the valuation discussion at peak. The shares of Airbnb were up 50 percent from where they opened on IPO day less than a year out, and they were a multi-bagger on issuance price was somewhere in the mid 60s. So I could see how people with maybe a shorter time frame, Brian just decided, you know I'm sitting on some pretty healthy short-term gains here. Uh, I'm going to take some profits.
1: Yeah, you can't blame, you can't blame them. And to your point, there's always all kinds of factors such as the lockup that can really smack around a share price, uh, in the short term. When you see combine that with the kind of crazy financial numbers that we've seen, it makes sense why Airbnb is traded all, all over the place. But I got to tell you, this is a business that I do not own. But when I think about the next five years, it's hard not for me not to be bullish on Airbnb.
0: I know I'm trying to learn my lesson here from other services that I just really enjoy but never bought the stock of and and Netflix is I think the poster child for this for me where it's like it is a business I've known about for such a long time. I've been a delighted customer for such a long time. I don't know why I never bought shares. I'm kicking myself daily for not buying shares, um, and trying to learn from that lesson with you know with Airbnb and say you know this is a great service. I've been using it for I think over five years at this point. Um, it, it's very unique in what it offers uh, in the hospitality industry, and I've seen the benefits firsthand. I mean, it, traveling internationally and being able to use Airbnb is wonderful. Um, even in a city like DC, my 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 Home city. A lot of the hotels are not particularly near where uh, a lot of my friends live, and so or where I've lived. And so, you know, being able to uh, have family visit and have them stay nearby rather than have them be downtown near the convention center, those types of things that Airbnb is able to solve for, offering unique travel experiences, all that kind of stuff. It's hard for the traditional hospitality industry and the incumbents there to really replicate that, Brian.
1: It really is. And what, one thing that I really like about Airbnb, aside from everything that you just said, and I myself am also a happy customer and have been uh, for years, their move into the experiences market just fascinates me that it can be, hey, not only can you use Airbnb to book a stay, you can also book it to book a once in a lifetime experience at your at your location. They think that that market could rival their, their staying business uh, over time. Uh, if that's true, this company could really go up for a long period of time.
0: It could, and and I thought, you know, okay, this is a this is a tech player in uh, kind of a legacy industry. Surely we're going to be staring at stretch valuations for this company relative to you know what you'd consider the alternates, um, you know, and that being maybe Hilton or, or Marriott, some of the other choices that that consumers might be able to make. And I was surprised, Brian, in in looking at where this thing is priced after this decline. Um, the valuations really aren't that different from the traditional hoteliers and like you know hilton's a 34 billion dollar company on trailing sales of 1.3 billion and you know their their sales got smacked in 2020 um marriott 45 billion dollar company on trailing sales of 1.7 billion both of those companies have worse gross margins than airbnb both of them suffered um much bigger declines in their revenue due to the pandemic, uh, which to me also says like Airbnb is probably a little bit more of a resilient business uh, than the traditional hotels.
1: Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. During the pandemic, Airbnb, while its financials didn't lo- look great, it its market share gains accelerated. Uh, that's a pretty remarkable story uh, to tell. So what's going to happen? I think that Airbnb is going to be really well positioned to capture uh, even more share uh, as we come out of this. So uh, like you, it's high on my watch list.
0: Hi, my watch list. And, you know, unfortunately, I think just dealing with some of the lumps of, uh, you know, the first 12 months of being on the market, um, the, the, Difficulty of you know having its business be squarely uh, affected by the pandemic and, and investors trying to make sense of that and just generally you know people deciding you know the gains have been pretty good short term uh, maybe pe- some people taking profits in addition to more shares being out there I, that that's the closest I can get to packaging the story for Airbnb um, not all that different from Appian in, in some ways. Um, Brian, the, the third company we're going to be talking about is The Trade Desk, another very familiar stock for fools, certainly familiar to me. I'm a shareholder. This is the one of the three that I own, the other being Watchlist Stocks. Are you a, are you a shareholder of The Trade Desk? Oh, yes, and have been for many years now, and it's been a really great holding. Yeah, it has. I mean, it's, uh, there, there are a lot of people that are sitting on some multi-bagger status, thanks to The Trade Desk.
1: Yeah. So the Trade Desk, the ticker symbol is uh, TTD. Um, this company is currently down about 21% from its uh, from its recent high. And that's not all that bad when considered to literally just like a week or two ago, it was down 40 or 50%. One other thing that's worth noting about the Trade Desk is if you've been following this company casually, you might look at its share price today, which is about $76. dollars and be scratching your head because just a few weeks, uh, uh, in December of last year, this was a $950 Per share stock. Don't be too alarmed at that. Just a few days ago, uh, Trade Desk executed a 10 for one stock split that reduced the number of shares, uh, that reduced the share price by a factor of 10, but it also increased the number of shares that were out there uh, by a factor of 10. It was a value neutral mark, but if you're just looking at the Trade Desk share price today, don't be like, wow, is this stock cheap right now?
0: (laughs) You know, and I'll, I'll say, Brian, as a shareholder, as someone that checks my brokerage account every day, I'd forgotten about the stock split. And so you know, I you you get used to if you sort your brokerage account a certain way, just knowing where names are going to be. And I went down, I scrolled to the bottom, I saw like you know, I think it was like eighty percent or ninety percent losses in red, you know, for the trade desk. I was like, what happened? And then you know, I was able to remind myself, oh, that's right, yeah, stock split coming. That don't have don't have to worry too much. But it's easy to forget those things in the grand scheme of a diversified portfolio, of stocks
1: especially if you are looking at your broker on the day of a stock split because oftentimes it takes brokers a day before they they kind of get that percentage gain right so to your point you can log in and be like am i down 90% on the on this stock uh, yeah you really have to keep keep things like that in mind so it always takes sense to go one step further
0: uh, yeah so thanks, that- thankfully they've normalized and gotten it to the point where we're <laughs> we're back to uh, you know the gains being reflected as they as they would be with my basis adjusted for stock splits but yeah it can it can add a little heartburn for people
1: it certainly can. Uh, and for those that are, are unfamiliar with the Trade Desk, or at least what they uh, they do, uh, the, the Trade Desk operates a, uh, a cloud-based ad buying platform that is used by both brands and ad agencies to help them uh, create, uh, manage, and advertise digital campaigns. So, uh, the trade desk is focused on a, a niche, uh, a niche, a growing niche in the advertising market called programmatic advertising, which uh, the, their platform uses big data to uh, place the right ad in front of the right consumer on the right device at the right time. So it really helps uh, brands and ad agencies to get the most out of their advertising uh, dollar. Uh, The Trade Desk as a leader uh, in that category has just grown extremely rapidly uh, over the last few years. And this has been a home run stock for for investors. Uh, Since since its 2016 IPO, this company is up 2,430%. And that's after including the recent drop. And when you look at the company's recent results, it makes sense as to why this stock has been so hot. Uh, revenue in the most recent quarter was up 37% to $220 million, While expenses were up across the board, a lot of that was due to stock-based compensation expense. So, earnings at this company, adjusted earnings, actually grew 56% uh, to $1.41 per share. That's not new. This company has essentially been profitable and cash flow positive since it came public. When you combine that with the hyper growth that it's seen and expanding margins, it's understandable why the stock has done so well.
0: Yeah, and and the thesis is is a, a familiar one really for anyone who owns Facebook or Google, you know, really really Alphabet, I should say. Um, if you expect more and more ad dollars to be spent on digital advertising, which you know I think by and large that's that's where marketers are going, uh, in part because it's trackable, in part because it works and the ROI is there. Um, this is a very similar play. You know, you're you're getting into uh, markets where consumers are spending a lot of time. Marketers have far more insights into the way that people are interacting with their ads. Uh, the ROI proves itself out there, and they're a facilitator of so much activity in that space.
1: And like we've seen with, with with COVID, COVID caused so many so many changes. One of those was really forcing marketers to, to put a put a really wonder about where they're getting the most bang for their buck with their advertising. So many of them pulled back on their traditional advertising mediums and were more willing to devote more share to programmatic advertising because, like you said, they could see the ROI. Not only that, but delivering things digitally cons- to consumers makes a whole lot of sense when consumers aren't going out and driving around to see billboards. Uh, for example, so it makes sense to me that this company's um, competitive advantage and market share actually grew as a result of
0: COVID. So, Brian, l- let's talk a little bit about that dip because uh, you know 40% is is pretty sizable. I know it's not quite at that point anymore, but um, that is a big haircut, especially for folks that that may be a little bit newer to the stock and didn't enjoy that massive climb um, that it experienced since its IPO. Yeah.
1: So. A lot of that, just like we saw with with Appian and and Airbnb, was sheerly valuation uh, driven. So the uh, the trade desk price to sales ratio has essentially been expanding uh, since it it came public. I mean, at one time you could have got this thing for under 10 times sales uh, in 2017. At its peak in December of last year, this company traded at over 65 times sales. That is a nosebleed valuation. Because of the recent drop, the price-to-sales ratio did fall into the mid-20s and it's recovered pretty sharply in the last few weeks. Even today, it's at 43 times times sales. Now, that's price-to-sales and because this company does have earnings, there is a PE ratio to look at. Those numbers are also pretty high though. On a trailing basis, it's trading at about 133 times earnings and on a forward basis, it's trading at about 110 times earnings. So, the market is clearly expecting a lot more growth out of this company.
0: Yeah, and and I know that they got caught up a little bit, too, in um, the wake of Google basically saying, like, we are going to limit the ways that people can be tracked on the internet. And there was a fear for a little while and and this thought that um, that would have a pretty dramatic effect on uh, advertisers because, you know, anything that gives marketers a better sense of who is seeing an ad theoretically improves the ROI for that ad. It gives them uh, a more granular look at who they're serving stuff up to. Uh, but but I think my hunch here, Brian, is that a lot of those concerns are kind of overblown. Um, in part because the alternative to digital ads is is their billboards, right? They're, they're newspapers, and um, you're, you're going to get a much less granular look at the person who's reading that, I would think, than you would anything in the in the digital realm.
1: Yeah. Um- to your point, that's something that has come up over and over again with this with this company on its recent calls. And the CEO and founder, Jeff Green, is an extremely consistent that they've known about this for years. They've been planning for this for years. And many of the outlets that they use to place ads have nothing to do with with, with, with cookies. So they are ready for this change. And if you look at their numbers, the numbers really back that up. Uh, more recently, we've seen that I think Google was, just, was delaying that change out to 2022, 2023. That could be a big reason why the share price has recovered so much. Much just in the last couple of weeks, but longer term, uh, I think the trade desk is well positioned to thrive, even in even in that world.
0: Yeah, and at the end of the day, like I, I just don't think digital ad spend is going anywhere. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's too effective. We see too many marketing dollars heading there, and, and I think they're only going to increase over time. Um, so you know, if if that's on your mind with this company, I think yeah, it, you can keep it in mind, but it's affecting the entire industry, and yet more and more dollars are still pouring in. You got it. Um, all right, Brian. So we we kind of did three similar but but slightly different stories here, um, and I think it might be helpful to kind of focus a little bit on on some takeaways just for people thinking through dips that they see and being able to identify them as buying opportunities or signs of trouble. Because we look at these three businesses, and you know, I say there, there's nothing really here that's interrupting the thesis. For these stocks. Um, there there are some changes that they need to go through and endure. There, you know, or there's the natural balancing act of valuation coming into play a little bit. But how do you differentiate between seeing something down 25% and saying, you know, I'm I'm actually more interested now? Uh, and then seeing something down 25% and say, ah boy, you know, I'm not going near that thing.
1: That's a really important question that investors need to, to answer for themselves. So yes, when a stock falls 20, 30, 50, even 70%, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was a it's a better buy today than it was prior to the, the enormous fall. Uh, I always start by looking at the business and the business results first. That's exactly what we tried to emphasize in the show. We saw with all three of these companies that the valuation went extremely high and then the valuation came crating back to earth. But if you dig in a look at the actual operating results for the company, there's reasons to be to be optimistic on, th- on all three of them. So, whenever I see a stock that I own fall drastically, um, I always go back to the most recent business results and ask myself, is the thesis for this company uh, still on track? Uh, is this company still have really good growth prospects? Um, does this company still have margin potential expansion? Is it, is it profitable? Does it have a strong balance sheet? Does it have a strong competitive advantage? Those are the things that I try and focus on. Um, Conversely, if a company is uh, is falling, if its stock is falling, but it's in a it's a really weak competitive advantage, or it's losing market share, or if its markets are cyclical, or if it's uh, if it's an unprofitable business, those are the type of businesses that when I see, I just say I'm staying the uh, staying away from that stock as it falls because that is a business in trouble. That's a really key distinction that investors need to make.
0: Yeah, and, and I find comfort um, sometimes in just reminding myself that. The reason that markets exist, the reason that I have shares to buy, is because you have a collection of people with different outlooks, different time horizons, different investment objectives. And so, you know, for for someone who you know looks at the rise of an Airbnb over a relatively short period of time and says, you know what, I'm going to bank those gains, that's perfectly fine. You know, they're 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 sitting in the green if they do that. Um, that's a different investing outlook than I have with my portfolio and most fools have with theirs because we're more long term focused and thesis driven investors. Um, but you kind of have to remind yourself, every time you're buying shares, it means someone's selling them. You know, they're not just printing them for you. Um and and so, you know, what you see in terms of shifts with valuation in the market, what you see in terms of reactions, can often be just because there are certain people who maybe have, you know, outsized action in response to any specific news piece, and they just have a different way of approaching investing than you do.
1: That's a really key point. I mean, when Warren Buffett buys shares and when a high-frequency trader's buys shares, optically, it looks like they're doing the exact same thing. They're both placing an order and putting shares into the portfolio. The only difference between them is the holding period, and that is a really, really key distinction between the two. So yes, that's one reason why I love the Foolish Investing philosophy of find great companies, buy great companies, hold great companies until they are no longer great. When that when, when when that is your philosophy and that's your mindset when short-term movements come around you can essentially ignore them and just focus on the business and say to yourself is the thesis for owning this still intact uh, if it is you can ignore the, the recent drop and even considering buying more um, and if it's not then you kind of need to reassess and maybe sell and deploy into something that's winning so yeah the mindset that you go into investing is
0: everything and on that Brian i think we can we can close this out with a Key reminder, one that I always try to keep in my head and one that you know I, I think if we do nothing else with a show like this I want to remind folks of, is we often think about diversification within what you own. And it's helpful to also think about diversification in when you've bought that thing. And we, we talk about it a lot and it's worth emphasizing, especially when you see businesses that are high growth, stretch valuations getting really stretched then come, come back down to earth a little bit. Um, buying into companies multiple times not tying your ownership and your cost basis to any one particular moment in time is a way to rest far easier as an investor and a way to approach these things as buying opportunities instead of saying, oh boy, I'm I'm sitting at 25% in the red here, do I really want to own this thing?
1: That's it. Uh, one of my favorite investors of all time is a guy named Tom Engel, and he calls that exact concept time diversification. Uh, investing in bull markets, investing in bear markets, investing in the same company over different uh, time periods, over different phases of its life, that can lower your risk too.
0: Yeah. And it makes it so much more fun to stare at something that's gone down a little bit and say, you know what, I'm going to buy a little bit more. Uh, I've spread it out over a couple of months. But, you know, you got to have your tricks, you got to set yourself up for success.
1: Investing is a whole lot more fun when you get excited by declines instead of scared by declines.
0: Isn't it? Isn't it, Brian? (laughs) Well, uh, Brian, thank you as always for hopping on today's show. Always a pleasure. Always nice to head into the weekend after having a conversation with you.
1: For sure. And you have a nice
0: Hawaiian shirt on today, so you are ready to go, Dylan. I love it. I'm steamrolling my way into the weekend. (laughs) Uh, I'm willing it, (laughs) fashion-wise. Love it. (laughs) <laughs> Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email at fool.com or you can tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on.